that it would be a light unto our path, and that by it we would see Jesus and be changed by him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So this upcoming Wednesday marks the beginning of what is called the the Lenten season or the season of Lent. And it begins on Ash Wednesday and it goes all the way up to the day before Easter Sunday. And it's been a practice over the church, over the centuries as a church, to see this as a season of repentance, of renewal, of returning, of refreshment and of reorientation of our lives around these two core historical events, and that is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's a season where, where we realign our lives in light of this, this reality. And while we won't be celebrating an Ash Wednesday service like we normally do, there'll be many other things that we'll be doing to participate together, such as a day of fasting, a day of prayer. We'll have a Good Friday service that will be here at the Classic Center But the main way that we will be entering into this Lenten season together is on Sunday mornings. And we're going to be walking through a new series together called At the Cross. And to help get a sense of what we are going to be doing over the next few weeks, I want you to think about a diamond. And so today is Valentine's Day. So happy Valentine's Day to everyone out there. Uh, If you've been watching TV lately, you've been seeing a lot more uh, jewelry commercials. And so all these commercials for different diamond jewelry and diamond rings. And we all know, have this sense that diamonds are valuable. And we tend to think at a very surface level, just, okay, the bigger the diamond, the better, or if just there's a lot of them, then it's more valuable. But if you're a professional diamond appraiser, if that's your work, your training, then you know it works a lot differently than that. There are going to be four C's that many of you are familiar with that an appraiser is going to walk through. So it's going to be carrot, color, clarity, and cut. So carrot, the actual size, how big is this diamond that we're looking at? Color, is it, is it clear or is it this yellowish tint? Clarity, does it have blemishes inside? And then finally the cut, how is the diamond shaped? And each of these matters in very specific ways. So take just one of these. Take the idea of the cut of a diamond. So to assess the value, the the appraiser is going to look at the overall shape, the table, the crown, the pavilion depth, the pavilion angle, the girdle, the upper girdle faucet, the upper main faucet, the star faucet, the lower girdle facet, and the lower main face. So I know that when you see a diamond on a commercial, you're automatically into looking at all those different aspects of it. That's what an appraiser has to do in order to grasp the value and the beauty of this, the intricacies of what this diamond is. And the same is true for the cross. So we've all heard this statement, Jesus died for our sins. But what all is behind those four simple words that we have heard so often? And my conviction is the better that we are able to see underneath and what is behind what happens on the cross, then the more our lives will be transformed into worship and into sacrificial love. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be 
picturing the cross as a diamond of something as precious value. And we're going to be looking at it from different angles. So we're going to see how the cross reveals, how the cross reconciles, how the cross redeems, how it frees, how it conquers and how it atones. And my hope is as we do that, that what happens there will become of that much greater value to us. And we'll see change happening from the inside out. But today we're going to start with just a bigger view. And what we're going to see is that there are really two basic ways to approach the cross. Two basic things we can see when we look at this historic event. So when looking at the cross and the death of Jesus, we can either see it as the height of human folly and weakness Or we can see it as the height of God's power and God's wisdom. Those are two very different perspectives. One of those perspectives finds the cross and what happens there as of such immeasurable value that we bank our lives completely on it. And the other way of looking at the cross sees it as something that is foolish and weak and to be passed over. And so I want to consider both of these in turns. And I do. And as I do so, I want you to be considering yourself the question, what does the cross mean to you? What do you see when you look at it and what difference does it make in your life here and now? So the first perspective, the the cross as human foolishness and weakness. So if you were to live At any place in the Roman Empire at this time, you would have had a very clear understanding of what the cross is and what it's all about. So just a few decades before Jesus' crucifixion, there was a large slave revolt by a man named Spartacus. And the revolt was crushed. And part of the punishment was that 6,000 of these rebels would have been crucified alongside the road that went from Rome to Calpa. So to to get a sense of what this might look like, imagine starting in downtown Atlanta and driving all the way to Chattanooga, Tennessee. And every 40 yards, there is a cross with someone hanging on it dying. Now, if you're driving at a normal pace, that is about one cross every second. So imagine being in the car for an hour and a half. And that's what you see. The, the concept of crucifixion was baked into this culture in a way that's very hard for us to understand here now. Many of, of them, if not most of them, would have actually seen and witnessed a crucifixion. Think about all the things that we try to protect our children from. And then imagine driving to the grocery store on a normal day and seeing a government sanctioned execution on the side of the road and your kids seeing that Um, that was commonplace that was a part of life in this empire and it was intentional which we'll get into in just a moment The, the basic idea was that crucifixion had been around for centuries but really human cruelty and ingenuity had had refined it and you could say perfected it over the years to achieve this maximum effect. And there's a lot that we could say about crucifixion, but I just want to say two simple things. There were two really main goals that the empire and those uh, executing had in mind, and that was pain and shame. 
So in terms of pain, there were many different forms of execution that day, but the most painful by far, and it was designed this way, was crucifixion. Without going into details, it was commonly seen as the worst way to die. It was designed to inflict the highest amount of pain over the longest period of time. The ancient philosopher Sisypho, he described it as, or Cicero described it as the most cruel and terrifying penalty, which is one of the reasons why they would not crucify Roman citizens. And second, there was the shame. The, the cross was designed with the public in mind. So first you would be beaten and scourged with this whip that contained bones and metal, and then you would be paraded through the streets before friends, before family, before strangers, neighbors, forced to carry part or all of your cross, and then you would be stripped of your clothes. And and it's most likely that in the case of Jesus, you'd be completely naked. So, So no little cloth to cover up. The Roman Empire does not care about preserving your dignity in any way. It is intentionally designed to be utterly humiliating. And so the the idea here is someone, the Roman Empire looks at you and says, oh, you want to be, uh, you don't want to be under our law. You want to be raised up. Well, we will raise you up. You'll have what you want. It was an intentional act of intimidation meant to strike fear into the hearts of those watching Parents, children, everyone. It was, it was a message to all that was clear. Don't forget who's in charge and don't step out of line. And so to say that this device is at, somehow at the heart of God's plan to rescue and save humanity, at, at the front of it just sounds foolish and sounds strange and even sounds offensive. Consider the, the gospel lesson for today. When, when these crowds of people look at what's happening on the cross, they find it absurd. We can hear it in their own words. If you really are the son of God, come down from the cross. If you're the son of God, why stay up there? Why be humiliated in this way? Why let this happen to you? And if God's your father, why would he... Let this happen. You saved others, you, but you can't save yourself. Come down and I'll believe in you. Show your power. He trusts in God. Let God deliver you if he cares about you. Surely if he did have any concern for you, he wouldn't just leave you there in this state. There's really no escaping how foolish all of this looks. Here is supposed to be the Savior of the world, the Son of God, the light that shines in darkness, the promised King. And here he is, defeated, humiliated, weakened, shamed, crushed, helpless, unable to save himself. How foolish it is to say, to look at that on that day and on this day and say that's the hope of the world. Now listen to what Paul says in verse 18. He says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. In other words, it's foolish. It's absurd. It's lunacy. 
It's madness. It's stupidity. He says, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block or a, a scandalon, where we get the word scandal. It's a scandal to Jews and it's folly to the Gentiles or any non-Jews. Jew or Gentile, you look at this and what you see is just foolish. And we have to agree that if the message of the Bible is not true, then the cross, what happened on that day is just one big display of human frailty and weakness and foolishness. But the Christian message and the Christian hope that we bank on, that we place our confidence in, is that there is actually so much, much, much more happening than meets the eye. Which brings us to our second point. The cross is not about human weakness and folly, but the cross is about God's wisdom and power. Let's hear the rest of verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So recently I started reading a book called Atomic Habits as part of kind of a New Year's resolution um, to make steps in life. And the subtitle is, it's an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. And the essence of this book, and I've learned a lot from it, is just here's some things that you can do to have a better life. When we hear the word of the cross, the word is not advice on how we should live. The word is not this path of self-enlightenment, nor is the word this kind of ultimate life hack that if you just get, life will all work and fit into place. The The word of the cross that he's talking about here, that is power, is a message. It's an announcement, not about what you are to do, but about what your God has done on your behalf. That is, it is this message that the only hope that we have, the only hope of the world is in a crucified God. That is God's power to save. So I remember in middle school and every year this this group would come to our school and as part of their motivational talk and their kind of performance, they would have this kind of end where they would take these uh, these telephone books and kind of rip them up in half. And now if if you are somewhat like my kids and you have no idea what a telephone book actually is, uh, just picture something yellow, something about this this big and this thick, about 2,000 pages. And just, just picture being able to rip something like that. But, but somehow as a sixth grader watching this, my mind was just blown because here are these dudes out there, just there's music blaring, they're yelling, and they just take and just shred this telephone book. And as a sixth grader watching, I'm thinking That's just, that is power. It, it doesn't get better than that. What, what do you think of when you think of power? Thor, Hulk, Superman, America, China, nuclear weapons. Who are, who are powerful people? Who are powerful groups? Who are powerful nations? What are powerful actions? And what do all those have in common? He, see, here we're told something strange about power that 
somehow God's power, his his saving power, his rescuing power is directly bound to this message of a crucified and humiliated son on a cross. What what seems like complete weakness is somehow power. Verse 21, it pleased God through the folly or the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For the world did not know God through its own wisdom. The world, with all its ingenuity, with all its creativeness, with all its intelligence and study, does not come to know God through its own wisdom. We come to know God through Jesus and his cross. And we're going to talk a lot next week about how the, God, how the cross reveals who God is, reveals his heart, reveals his purposes. But we as Christians see this event as power. And we see it at work even in our own lives. So think about this. If you are trying to start a new movement, a movement that you hope is going to change the world and influence uh, the maximum amount of people possible, who are you going to choose? Who has power? Who has knowledge? Who has influence? Who has resources? Common sense tells us that's where to start. But God turns this upside down in a very foolish way. And this is going to give us insight into how the gospel works. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The, the church that was receiving this letter was a complete mess. We often, we often have these kind of idyllic picture of what the early church looked like and how everybody got along and everybody worshiped and everybody was learning and giving. Uh, you should read Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. It was a complete mess, but it was God's mess. And here he is telling them some of the beauty of how the gospel works, that it's not about us. It's not about what we bring to the table. It is about what God himself brings to the table, that he is displaying his grace and his power through our own weakness and through our own sin. So if you made it all the way through the Super Bowl last Sunday and saw the trophy presentation, what you saw was individuals holding up this Lombardi trophy, this kind of this height of team sports achievement and, and, share, and giving their thanks for who helped make it happen. And as great as he is, you don't see Tom Brady going up there, supposedly the greatest of all time, looking and saying, I I just want to say how hard it was to carry everybody on my back and how good I feel about my performance. I want to dedicate this to me. That is one form of boasting. You don't see that. Um, There, even I think about what you saw in Bruce Arians. So this is the coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the team that won. 
when he held the trophy, he said, this really belongs to our coaching staff and our players. This is your trophy. I didn't do a thing. You guys won this game. You came together as a band of brothers and you made it happening. What he's doing there is another form of boasting. He's saying, you did it. You did it, and I love it. It's amazing. Now, we know that a coach does a lot, and he deserves a lot of the credit. But when it comes to our rescue, when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to our victory, we contribute nothing. He does everything. Verse 30 and 31, it is because of him, it's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What's happening at the cross is something that we are meant to look at and say with glad and joyful hearts, you did it, you did it. We didn't do it. And the way that you did it was so amazing and so humbling that it's going to take the rest of my life and all eternity to to put my hands around, to get my heart around. Here's the fuller quote from the prophet Jeremiah. Let not the wise boast in their wisdom, the strong boast in their strength, the rich boast in their riches. So, All these things that you have are not meant to be the place of your boasting, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they understand me, they know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness and justice and righteousness. So my question to you is, when you look at the cross, what do you see? What do you see? Do you see foolishness? Do you see weakness? Do you see another hyped up religious leader just being crushed by the world again? Or do you see the power of God doing for us what we could not do for ourselves at such great and immeasurable cost to himself? One perspective says if you really are the son of God, then you could have come down from the cross If you could save others, surely you can save yourself. The other says, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. Our God acted foolishly for us and for our salvation because he loves us. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Our good Lord, we struggle to see the beauty and the power and the wisdom of the cross. We look the other way or we become numb or we have big questions about how it all works. And we come to you asking that over this next few weeks that the cross and our Savior who died there would become more clear to us, would become more precious and more worthy that our hearts would be moved, our lives stirred, and the outflow would be worship and adoration and trust and courageous acts of sacrificial love because we have one who so courageously and sacrificially loved us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.
As we respond with our hymn of response, When I Survey, I'd like to invite you to stand and join us in singing.